President Trump says he's narrowed the list of potential nominees to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court to two or three. I think when you look at this search, you have to start with Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh, he's sort of the establishment choice. Brett Kavanaugh is the only Ivy Leaguer on the list. Yale and Yale Law, something President Trump has said is important. Kavanaugh is a former clerk to Justice Kennedy. Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh. The president has settled on his nominee for the Supreme Court. Tonight, it is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. Hi, I'm Amber McKinney. Welcome to Law 360's Pro Se Podcast. As you can hear, everybody is talking about Judge Kavanaugh. So we're not going to be any different. We're going to talk about him, too. I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. You know, I mean, we'd, we'd been in kind of a, I wouldn't call it a rut. It's important business, but a lot of really Supreme Court heavy. It's not a rut. It's my favorite thing to talk no, about. I, I, I kind of like that we have this extension. I was kind of looking forward to, you know, seeing what else is going on in the legal landscape. But then there I was watching The Bachelorette like I do. And, and the president slides into the DMs with a new Supreme Court judge. Big Don said, look at the big brains on, on Brett. Brett. Wow, <laughs> look at this guy. The rare Donald Trump, Quentin Tarantino uh, Venn diagram I mean, that's from, why from I'm here. Bill I'm, Donahue. I mean, there's everybody's heard about Judge Kavanaugh by now, but there's so much to unpack. We've got a ton of stories we've done at Law360 where yes. we've run down all mm-hmm. the things you can know about his jurisprudence so far. Because he's been... Um, an active judge for many years. Yep. So we just figured there was lots to talk about today. We'll spend the whole show doing it. And I spent hours. Over, <laughs> I spent like... You're uniquely equipped to, to, I spent like, to get us through this. Like I want to say, I don't know, like 15 or 16 hours listening to oral arguments involving this gentleman. You did. So, You're an expert now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and just so everybody knows the sort of order of events, we are also going to have Jimmy Hoover, who's a repeat guest uh, from our DC Bureau, yeah. on the yep. show later because he's got a, a nice vantage point on this too. Yeah, Jimmy's always got great stuff to tell us, but we're going to start uh, in-house. Bill, you've got, uh, we want to sort of run down the particulars of... Sure. Uh, of uh, Should I do it in his justice. voice? I can do a pretty good impression at this point. Ooh, that's risky, <laughs> but uh, yeah. All right, so let's 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 like reset, let's set the, the stage for like who Brett yeah, Kavanaugh who is, is. Who, who is this guy? He's 53, born in D.C., did Yale for both undergrad and, and uh, his law degree. Um, so you're saying he's part of that whole Yale thing? <laughs> <laughs> But also, also, does anyone know? Does anyone know the last justice who did not go to Harvard or Yale for law school? Oh, anyone? that's a great question. Uh, didn't one of them go to Columbia? No, it was well. No, no. I mean, on the current court? on the current court, they all did. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. The last. The, anyway, the last person uh, was Judge Rehnquist. Ah. Uh, William Rehnquist huh. went to Stanford, 1986. Anyway, sorry. So he wow. went to Yale and Yale Law. Correct. Um, and then had a pretty prestigious run of uh, clerking. He clerked for. Um, Walter King Stapleton on the Third Circuit, uh, then Alex Kaczynski, who we all know, um, yeah, uh, on the, the Ninth, Ninth Circuit. Circuit, and then uh, did a fellowship with the Solicitor General's office when Ken Starr was the Solicitor General, and then uh, clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Okay, well, I mean, Ken Starr kind of always is a, sort of a cultural touchstone there, right. and then I think he clearly did very well for Mr. Starr because then he, he, he popped up right later. so so uh, he finishes up with Kennedy and um, in the late 90s Kavanaugh ended up working for Starr in the independent counsel investigation into Bill Clinton mm-hmm. um, he eventually was one of the principal authors of the Starr report yeah. into the whole Monica Lewinsky and Vince Foster whole everything they were investigating right and he argued really strongly in favor of impeachment of Bill Clinton uh, so after a th- 
he did a quick stint at Big Law um, at Kirkland and Ellis for three years, and yeah. then he joined the Bush administration, and um, he was the assistant to the president, eventually the White House staff secretary. This is all a really prestigious background, but it is. he does eventually become a judge on the D.C. Circuit. So how'd he get there? Right. So Bush nominates him in 2003, um, but like now, um, he was sort of viewed as as a partisan, probably because of his role in the Clinton impeachment process and sure. everything else. Um, Dick Durbin uh, famously referred to him as the Forrest Gump of Republican politics, I, saying that <laughs> just that he had like appeared in all these different. Oh right, he pops up everywhere. I was, yeah, right. I saw it in the yeah. nose. I was like, what is he going after there? Right. It's not really like a partisan shot. It's just like he yeah. kind of he kind of drifts through American history. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Right. Um, well, it's a funny thing to say about a guy who went to Yale that he's Forrest Gump. But uh, yeah. so he eventually gets through in 2006. Um, but again, like now, it was a very very contentious set of hearings, like it's going to be in right. the next few months. And, you know, Democrats said that he is this fairly partisan guy and that, like, you know, he's not going to be this this neutral judge that 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 they're looking for. From the notorious star report to the Florida recount to the president's secrecy and privilege claims to post 9-11 legislative battles, including the victims compensation fund to ideological judicial nomination fights. If there's been a partisan political fight that needed a very bright legal foot soldier in the last decade, Brett Kavanaugh was probably there. That kind of record is not dispositive, to be sure, but it feeds an impression of partisanship that is, to put it mildly, not ideal for a nominee to a critically important lifetime post as a neutral judge. So if you couldn't tell from his, uh, you know, completely unrecognizable voice, that was Chuck Schumer. Right. Uh, um, Pretty clear Chuck Schumer is not going to support this nominee. Right. Yeah. So now, so, uh, so it just, it, I think it really illustrates the fact that, you know, nothing has changed. That, that This guy yeah. is viewed as a partisan. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and, he eventually yeah. for for all of that uh, opposition, he eventually he eventually gets on the bench and he's been there for over a decade now. Right. What do we know about Kavanaugh as a jurist? So we talk about it on the show. He the the DC circuit where he was right. uh, handles a lot of administrative and regulatory law. Anything involving uh, the administrative state, the federal government's regulatory agencies goes through the DC circuit a lot yeah. of times without even going to a district yeah. court. Mm-hmm. So just by the nature of where he is that he's that's the biggest thing about him that he's he's handled that kind of work and and he's he's made it a point to really push back on on the administrative state and really limit the ability of regulatory agencies to to um you know to go too far in terms of what they do so mm-hmm. um he's written a ton on environmental regulations um uh, you know frequently voicing sort of skeptical views on on the use of the Clean Air Act and all the old sort of statutes in in adapting to to the the sort of problems of climate change that we're that we're figuring out we have now. By the way, I just want to say on the on the policy, I understand it's laudable and the Earth is warming and humans are contributing, and I understand the the international collective action problem here. I understand that very well, and I understand the frustration with Congress. I live that too. Everyone understands that, but under a system of separation of powers and this is why it's so important uh, that we maintain that Congress is supposed to make the decision you might say you know this Congress this is not gonna they're not gonna do anything but that's not how we we get to make decisions 
So that was oral arguments on the uh, Obama administration's clean power plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Never actually got a ruling on that one because uh, it was sort of late in the administration and now Trump is going to repeal it. But um, it sort of illustrates – I thought that clip in particular really illustrates his – worldview. Yeah, uh, yeah know, it like that, crystallizes how he views the separation between the judiciary exactly. and the other yeah. branches. And he doesn't yeah. want you creatively using old laws. Yeah. That's sort of the, you know, um, you can see how he goes at that. <clears throat> right. Um, well, there's some other ones I think it's probably worth us running down. I know um, an issue that you've covered, uh, Law 360, some bill is net neutrality. He's that's right. He's on that. Um, so he wrote a dissent from the 2017 ruling that upheld the Obama administration, F- era, the Obama era FCC's net neutrality rules. Right. Um, and he laid out this idea that um, we'll probably get into a little bit with Jimmy, but the the idea of of the the major rules doctrine um, that's this idea of it sort of limits what you can do. That if if you are passing something really, if you're doing something really big, really important, really impactful, it creates a level you know that there, that, that it it creates the, this situation where Congress needs to be really clear about what mm-hmm. they're giving you the power to do. Yeah, and so by sort of taking that approach, he has been able to. You know, voice this reason for why agencies aren't allowed to do yeah, some of this stuff. There's a there's a threshold of rulemaking exactly. that like increases the burden on or, 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 or increases like the the scrutiny that they right. should yeah. be the subject. Um, yeah. In 2015, he wrote a dissent uh, in favor of religious employers who claimed that the um, the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, Obamacare, right. that its um, contraception mandate was was too burdensome on them. Uh, and then last year, very. Um, uh, he issued a pretty strongly written ruling that said the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, was unconstitutional because it placed too much power in its leader mm-hmm. and that sort of usurped that it, it had no check. It had no balance. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, that gets to his idea of, you know, that there needs to be checks and balances in terms of the way that these things are, are structured. Exactly. The reason for the commission structure was that this is an exception or a difference from the usual control the president has over the executive branch. And if we're going to have that kind of structure, we want it to be a group that's going to be nonpartisan or bipartisan. You can't have that with a single person. You're concentrating in a single person a huge amount of power, and the president has has no authority over, over that. So that was the the arguments leading up to um, to that ruling, which then eventually was overturned by the full D.C. Circuit. But so we're painting a pretty clear picture here, I think, with these rulings about his worldview when it comes to the administrative state. You're right. That's his. That's his. That's the thing we know the most about. Yeah. Him. Well, yeah. there's one that's going to be the most hot button, though, so we can't leave out talking about it. Um, everyone's. All eyes are on whether or not Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Right. So, do we have indications about how he feels about that? Not much. Um, and he's going to do, during his upcoming confirmation hearings, yeah. he's going to do what has become the norm for judicial nominees, which is to say, I can't comment on a particular I, – I, it, it is against the rules for me to say the way that I would rule in a particular case. But Roe is settled Supreme Court precedent, right. and mm-hmm. that, is the, that is the law of the land. And he yeah. probably won't comment any further. What's interesting is he was at the center of a very recent high-profile case about abortion. Um, it was the case involving a, a 17-year-old unaccompanied uh, immigrant who was in uh, federal custody and was pregnant and wanted to terminate the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And um, so eventually uh, the en banc D.C. Circuit allowed her to move forward with the abortion over the protests of the Trump administration. Right. Um Kavanaugh dissented from that opinion uh, pretty strongly, um, but but 
what's interesting is that he didn't go quite as far as another conservative judge on the court who said that um, the other judge would have gone even further and said, there, you know, there's there's no due process right at all here that yeah. – he didn't go that far. He it was more of a technicality. He said he had a more pragmatic way that they could dispose of the case. They would have released her to a custodian, given the government more time to find mm-hmm. a, a sponsor. Yeah. So it's everyone's going to be going through and reading everything that he wrote, and yeah. and you know I listen to the arguments. They're very interesting. <clears throat> it's um, also that kind of thing where um, if you're a liberal, you're going to see his dissent and say, "Oh, Roe versus Wade's in trouble." If right. you're an ultra conservative, like very conservative, you'll say, right. "Oh, he didn't right. go far enough." So right. there's a little bit to hate on every side there. A little bit of ambiguity, which yeah. is always fun going into uh, right. <laughs> confirmation hearings. Yeah, um, you already kind of referenced it. Whenever there's a new Supreme Court justice who's been appointed, we uh, people sort of begin to scour things they've written, rulings they've issued for whatever issue is important to them. We saw yeah. that in earnest. We've already talked about a couple of them here. One thing, though, um, that came to light soon after he was announced, um, or, or soon after he was even rumored to be a candidate, was uh, an interesting uh, piece of writing that he did in 2009 um, that raised a lot of eyebrows. And it was his assertion um, that the president should be sort of insulated from certain kind of legal machinations as the executive. I can't imagine how that would come into play these days. <laughs> yeah, he wrote... Alex, this is an academic subject. Let's move on. No, I mean, uh, as, um, as, as you've hinted, well, it's it, 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 it put it this way. It was an academic subject, and that's why he wrote it in the uh, Minnesota Law Review. Uh, anyway, so this is... this The, the subject of this uh, Law Review article in 2009 was about sort of the limits of executive power. Yep. And um, it's important to note, as you already did, that he really cut his teeth um, on the Ken Starr team. And mm-hmm. he literally prosecuted a sitting president sure. for various things. We don't have to relitigate the entire Starr report here um, about whether it was good enough use of government resources or anything like that. But that's what he did for mm-hmm. several years. Um, but then when he went to work in the Bush White House, um, this is apparently where he had a big come to Jesus moment about the unique position of the president. And he wrote about it in this article. Um, he basically said uh that while he was with President Bush, he basically understood the unique pressures that presidents face and about how decisions they make literally just come down to them. You're not a lawmaker who's right. like, you know, acting yeah. in, in concert with your colleagues. You're not an appeals judge who like works with his colleagues and things like that. And basically he came to the came to the conclusion that because of that, special considerations must be made. The upshot, this is a quote from the paper. I believe that the president should be excused from some of the burdens of ordinary citizenship while serving in office. We should not burden a sitting president with civil suits, criminal investigations, or criminal prosecutions. Okay. Uh, Well, guys, I mean, on this podcast and everywhere in the media, uh, we've talked about Trump being sued for a multitude of things. And then there's the looming um, investigation into the possible collusion with Russia. So... I bet everybody freaked out when they read this article. Yeah, right? I mean, and as you already sort of hinted at, it, it it served as a Rorschach test for whoever is on whatever side of that issue. And however you feel about the Mueller investigation, yeah, I mean, we have talked before about the the rights that the president has to pardon himself, right, or whether he is constitutionally obligated to respond to subpoenas or uh, you know indictments and things like that. And it's very not very likely. I mean, to, it, we don't know what's going to happen with the Mueller investigation, but it. If something comes of that, yeah, there's and, like a foreseeable, and there's a pressing legal question. Supreme None Court. of these questions have been contemplated. Yeah. This is why Bill referred to it as an academic issue, um, and so you can see how people weren't very comfortable with the idea of the president handpicking a judge who might 
ha- who might be in a position to, you know, examine this specific legal question. Um, so there was hand wringing about that. But there's an important caveat, and if you read the article, the the actual law review article that he wrote, for all of these for all of these views he has about the unique position of the presidency, he said. All these protections that I'm talking about that should be given to the president from prosecutions and things like that, Congress should act and pass a law. He said Congress should insulate the executive from things like this. So if you're a person who's worried about how he'll act as as a jurist examining this question, we don't quite know enough yet to know whether or not he thinks there's enough there there to say, like, I, a judge in this case— Say, yes, uh, you do have to answer this subpoena, or no, you certainly do not. You can tear it up. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a hypothetical exercise. It's a law review article. It's not a legal opinion. Um, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. It's an interesting, no matter how you feel politically, it's a fascinating piece of writing to read just because you can see him like walking through the various stages of his career. Because he doesn't shy away from his, he, he writes about right. when, he was, when yeah. he was investigating Clinton and then how he came to learn this stuff about the presidency. He evolved on the uh, subject. Basically, yeah. yeah. And you can see it sort of in his writing. It's an interesting piece of writing that could become more than just interesting in a couple of months, but uh, well, or, or we'll, you know, we'll see. I love that you specifically highlighted there um, that it's an interesting piece of his writing. Because yeah. that's sort of what I want to kind of pivot to and talk about just a little bit, mm-hmm. which is his writing style. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because here at Law 360 and many places, people scour over the writings of Supreme Court justices. This yeah. is kind of our bread and butter. Um And all of them have a different, distinct style, so it's interesting to see what his might be. Jackie Bell wrote a good story for us about this, and just to sort of set up the tone here, there's just a sentence I'd like to read from her story. Justice Anthony Kennedy took his share of knocks for grandiose and occasionally purple prose. The late Justice Antonin Scalia was fond of verbal pyrotechnics, particularly in dissent, using phrases like jiggery-pokery, pure applesauce, and argle-bargle. I remember argle-bargle, yeah. Yeah, so we talk about this a lot. May he rest in peace. My goodness. <laughs> and the My idea character. is, you know, what do we know about Kavanaugh and how he'll be? And we actually have a wealth of material from all those yeah, years in the D.C. Sure. circuit. He's been there for 12 years. So the upshot here is he's really known for very clear and concise writing. Hmm, okay. So What does that exactly mean? Well, Jackie talked to the president of a training firm called Legal Writing Pro, who said this about Kavanaugh's style. He said, his sentences are crisp and controlled, his word choice punchy, his transition seamless, and his analysis organized with military precision. Yeah. Cool. So, so what that actually means for I'm, us is it's I, great because we'll yeah. have really clear re- rulings to <laughs> yeah. write about here. I sure hope so. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. When, when Gorsuch was nominated, we talked about his writing style. Yeah. <laughs> so before, when he was a nominee, before he was on the court, he was admired widely for being a writer who's considered like accessible yeah. and witty. But then when it, once he got on the court, it seemed like he amped it up a notch. <laughs> yeah. And he started writing things like, and I'm just going to read one sentence. Disruptive dinnertime calls, downright deceit, and more besides drew Congress's eye to the debt collection yeah. industry. Wow. So that spawned this I'm whole... Not a, I'm, I'm not a Gorsuch writing It fan. spawned this whole hashtag that's Gorsuch style that yeah. essentially makes fun of how he's gone hard into being super folksy and yeah. all of that. Well, in any case, I mean, that's that's what's going on with Gorsuch. Maybe 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 it's too late to save him. But let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about some things Kavanaugh's actually written. I, I, I assume Jackie gave us some samples of, yeah, this, for of sure. this military precision-like and, writing. And this it? is also supposed to sort of illustrate that he likes um, things that are like strong lead in sentences and he likes summaries and that kind of stuff which you know is part of him being so yeah, clear sure. so one a greatest hits moment there was a dispute over parking terminal access fees which I'm already half asleep saying that <laughs> and he reassured everyone by saying 
in the very first sentence, this is not a complicated case. <laughs> Again, as a reporter, if yeah, I'm, if I'm it, reporting right? on that opinion, oh my goodness, like, great, it's not complicated. He also is wry sometimes in a case involving <laughs> the Junk Facts Prevention Act. Yeah, sure, that one. He began by saying, believe it or not, the fax machine is not yet extinct. So, I mean, <laughs> okay. it can be fun. Um, and then he also occasionally will have like a narrative approach, but something that's still really easy to follow. So here's an example of that. This case arose out of a drunken brawl, a not uncommon occurrence late at night outside of D.C. But this fight had an uncommon and tragic ending. Someone died. See, now that's now that's pretty concise stuff. It's he like, catches it's, it with that a, narrative, right? What happened and why do I care? It's like an and elevator pitch for a movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so right, well. um, we will hope for some clear writing if he does eventually end up on the court. Today for our main segment is our man on the ground in D.C., our senior Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. He's going to help explain everything that's going on in D.C. related to the nomination. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Gosh, um, so Kavanaugh does have a lot of credentials that have been talked about a lot this week. Can you run through his resume and sort of what was probably the thing that put him over the top for Trump to nominate him? Yeah, so... um Judge Kavanaugh has kind of been on the radar of the conservative legal establishment as a potential Supreme Court nominee well before uh, President Trump became a a force in in presidential politics and uh, really um, has been kind of made a name for himself on the D.C. Circuit over the years as, uh, you know, a fierce opponent of what he considers to be executive overreach in the area of uh, administrative law. He kind of sees his role as a a, a check on, um, you know, federal bureaucracies kind of overstepping what he sees as their congressional authority. Mm-hmm. And he's done this in cases involving the, you know, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the uh, Federal Communications Commission, and an, a lot of other acronym uh, DC <laughs> right. federal agents. Yeah. Alphabet soup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the White House has prioritized um, selecting uh, judicial nominees with strong views about the separation of powers and reining back in what they consider to be the administrative state and the kind of overbroad executive. Um, uh, White House counsel Don McGahn said so earlier this year, and it really has been a top priority of the kind of conservative legal movement for, for several years now. So, Jimmy, you've already talked a bit about um, sort of his resume and his bona fides, but I think um, you had done some reporting on how there were some personal dynamics at play in the pick of Kavanaugh as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh actually clerked for Justice Kennedy uh, during the October 1993 term of the Supreme Court alongside uh, the most recent appointee to the court, Justice Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> and uh, came up together. Yeah, and I've 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 spoken like a coaching to, tree in football. Well, I was gonna, <laughs> I was going to say like minor leaguers in baseball. Yeah, same right? sure. so it's like, same you know, idea. We, we played in Tuscaloosa together. <laughs> anyway, Jimmy. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no. Basically, um, I was just going to say I I had talked to uh, former clerks of both uh, Judge Kavanaugh and Justice Kennedy, who said that uh, you know the justice would never cease to to mention how you know highly he thought of. Uh, 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 Judge Kavanaugh as a clerk when he was clerking for the court in the early 90s and would say that you know he was in the office early in the morning and he was in the office late at night as Justice Kennedy was heading out the door. And the two, uh, I understand, have uh, you know ha- had a pretty warm relationship over the years. Uh, it was Justice Kennedy that I think swore um, Judge Kavanaugh into the D.C. Circuit and um, 
After meeting um, Justice Kennedy at the White House on the day that he announced his retirement for the court, uh, President Trump told reporters that he had asked uh, the justice who he recommended to be his replacement, causing a little bit of speculation about whether or not he picked uh, one of his favorite clerks for the spot. Although, uh, Judge Raymond Kethledge of the Sixth Circuit was also uh, a former Kennedy clerk and rumored to have been on the Supreme Court shortlist, so we don't know for sure. So uh, Kavanaugh is viewed, you know, uh, as, like you said, as someone who's sort of been groomed for a long time, uh, is a darling of the conservative movement, and a lot of people on the other side of the aisle are, are, are obviously very concerned about his nomination, but, but he's also gotten a little bit of blowback right from, from people who are very, very conservative and say that some, there, there's some question as to his, um, you know, his, his commitment to the cause. Yeah, in the uh, days before uh, President Trump announced Kavanaugh as his nominee, he was listed among two or three other uh, very conservative judges as the likely uh, candidates for the for Justice Kennedy's seat, and uh, some uh, conservatives had been, you know, taken to blogs and op-eds and other articles to kind of express their disapproval of ju- of some of Judge Kavanaugh's votes in, you know, for instance, one was in a uh, Obamacare case where uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh dismissed the case on not reaching the merits of the case, but on jurisdictional grounds. And right, that was right. seen as uh, kind of insufficiently conservative. There was another one um, in which, uh, you know, in the Garza versus... Um, right, the high-profile abortion case that was very recently. Yeah. Right. Yeah, in the recent um, you know case involving the teen uh, undocumented immigrant who was trying to get an abortion, uh, Judge Kavanaugh kind of conceded in his opinion that under current Supreme Court law, you know, the right to abortion exists in this right, country, and right. that was also kind of um, targeted for criticism by some members. So of they the, basically uh, were right. they were basically saying like they wanted opinions from him that said. And Roe versus Wade should be overturned, and none of this should happen. Like well, they wanted there, the misdreidness. There was in that in the Garza one, there was an even stronger dissent that right. was issued by another conservative judge on the D.C. Circuit that that did go further than yeah. than what um, what Kavanaugh said. That's um, right, and, yeah. and Judge Kavanaugh didn't join that, and that was right. seen as kind of it, an uh, area of uh, you know attack. Yeah, well, I guess you can't please everybody all the time, but he's he's uh, going to the bench now in all likelihood, and so I think the one thing we're most people expect him to be able to, you know, make a conservative footprint is in the broad area of just regulation and and uh, the way agencies administrate those regulations, which you talked about a little bit with us already. But why? What are people honing in on when they're talking about how he's going to approach regulations that come before him? Yeah. So Judge Kavanaugh has um, spoken frequently um, about, uh, you know. Uh, regulatory overreach and what he sees as, you know, uh, sometimes judges going astray and how they're hearing these cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, One issue that comes up a lot, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with it, is called Chevron deference. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a judicial doctrine that tells courts to kind of defer to an agency's interpretation of the law. Right. They're the the experts. Let them do it. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so, um, you know, this obviously provides regulatory agencies like the EPA and others um, you know, a little bit of wiggle room to implement their kind of policy choices and, and um, provides kind of cover fire for them in, um, you know, legal challenges that often come up before the D.C. Circuit. And right. he's been critical of this uh, doctrine for a variety of reasons. And he's not the only one um, that's been critical of Chevron deference, right? I, I remember, I think Alex had brought it up on the show at some point in the last several weeks, that Gorsuch had also been yeah, targeting yeah, yeah, this, this is doctrine. A, this is a little totem issue for Gorsuch, yeah. 
Right, yeah. Gorsuch wrote this kind of famous, well, famous by the standards of the very kind of nerdy legal community. Exactly, but, uh, yes. <laughs> That's us. Important Niche. caveat there. Niche famous. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, this opinion on the Tenth Circuit basically saying it was time to revisit Chevron. Uh-huh. And I, uh, like I said earlier, it was Don McGahn that said that that opinion kind of really uh, put him on the map in terms of uh, you know the judicial selection process for the Supreme Court. Yeah. So Kavanaugh has expressed kind of similar gripes with Chevron, although... I'll say, at the risk of getting too nerdy, what are the nuances between the way these guys, like, grapple with this thing that they, that they don't like? Sure, yeah. So Gorsuch is kind of um, really made a lot out of the separation of powers issue with mm-hmm. the Chevron deference. He sees it as kind of an abdication of the judicial role to interpret the law. And while it's not exactly clear, Kavanaugh has kind of lent credence to that view, but his major um, qualm with Chevron is basically how it's applied, because you know Chevron is like still a standing precedent in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and sitting on the D.C. Circuit, he has to um, faithfully you know, uphold the precedent, but right. his, his gripe is with kind of how it's applied. He'd like to see the court using less of Chevron deference and just resolving and interpreting the law on its own. Right. So, I mean, we have you on the phone. You're our boots on the ground in, in D.C. Uh, let's pull back from the nerdy minutia and get into sort of the real politic here and talk about what's going to happen in the next couple weeks or the next couple months with the Kavanaugh nomination. I mean, uh, sort of what like, you know, where 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 are these like where what are the flashpoints going to be? What I mean, obviously, Roe v. Wade, I have to think, is going to is going to factor in. Um, walk us through what's going to happen in the next couple and then as we go forward. Yeah, so now, obviously, as we've seen in the last few Supreme Court uh, the confirmation battles, uh, the Republicans are trying to confirm uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh as quickly as they can, and uh, you know, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's going to oppose it with everything he's got. Um, right now, the uh, Republicans are, have the advantage. They have a slight majority in the Senate, and uh, uh, the Democrats really are going to need to stick together and then pull over maybe one or two Republicans to their side if they're going to actually put up a, a fight to this thing. So who would that be? I mean, I imagine it would be maybe Susan Collins, who has been a swing in the past in the Democrats' favor, who's a Republican. That's right. Susan Collins, um, who said that uh, she is, you know, uh, worried about um, confirming a a justice of the Supreme Court who would um, do rollback abortion rights. So that could be an area where that Democrats could could seize on potentially another um, uh, person that uh, another senator that they've gotten there that Democrats have in their sights is uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who's another one who um, tends to be in the more moderate camp so, of the Republican Party. So these are like the same contours about when we were talking about the health care sure. uh, debate when they were trying to roll back Obamacare. It's the same, same people that might side with the Democrats. That's right. And like you said, Roe v. Wade is going to be huge during the um, upcoming confirmation hearings for this thing. And uh, I suspect we'll see a lot of, uh, you know, dodging and weaving on the part of uh, the nominee. And there and there's you have to think there's that sense, you know, that the Democrats feel like they have to do this because there's still that sense of grievance over over what happened with Merrick Garland. Yeah, I mean, you heard this right after uh, Justice Kennedy announced that he was going to be retiring, that the Democrats said that, well, you know, it's an election year, and like you guys did to uh, <laughs> Judge Garland right. in uh, 2016, uh, we're not going to confirm a uh, new uh, Supreme Court justice in an election year. Uh, Republicans shoot back and they say, well, that was a presidential election year. Right. So there was a little bit of a difference. Um, but basically, the uh, stakes are, are, are the kind of... Um, 
um, political dynamics are a little bit different because if you guys remember, in 2017, they uh, the Senate uh, Republicans invoked a rule change where now, as opposed to you know a 60-vote cloture vote to um, you know do put a justice on the Supreme Court, it's just a, a majority, which the Republicans at the moment have. Yeah, and that, that really puts them on the fast track to getting this done. That's right. They want to get it done by the fall, and the Democrats say they're going to do everything they can to uh, uh, stop that from happening. Well, Jimmy, this is going to keep you busy down there in D.C. Thanks for being with us to talk about Kavanaugh today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Guys. Thanks, Jimmy. That'll wrap up our show for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We have other people to thank as well. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests, Jimmy Hoover. And contributing reporters this week, Michael McInerney, Jackie Bell, Brandon Lowry, and a whole lot of other people at Law360 because we've got a ton of coverage on this issue. If you want to know more about any of that, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you like our show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and see you again next week.